Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Father, we love you and we need you. And Um, we pray that you would meet us in this place by your spirit. We pray that your spirit would move in power in and among and through this church. And we pray that as we open your word tonight, that you would open our hearts. Um, Father, this this is a tough one for me to preach and a hard passage to be able to unlock but I think it's critically important and you included it in your word. And so as we open it up together tonight, we, we thank you for what we're about to see and just pray that you would use it to help sober us and shape us. We pray this in the name of Christ, amen. Church, last Sunday was Easter Sunday. And we had a fantastic celebration. It was so much fun as we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we had singing and the preached word and we celebrated baptisms. And some of you who are here got baptized last Sunday and stood and publicly proclaimed your faith in Jesus. And we got to cheer you on. It was a blast. Um, today, we're jumping back into our series in Acts. If you're newer to Redemption Hill, we, we at times will step out and do a few weeks on a given topic or an important issue, but most of the time, our, our default mode is to walk through books of the Bible week by week, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so we've been in a study through the book of Acts, the beginning of Acts that we've called Beginnings, because the book of Acts shows us the foundations of the early church. And so it's been our hope, my hope, that as we walk through this together, that seeing the beginning of the church and how the church started and the emphases in the early church that we would see the foundation for our church because this is the story that we are a part of even here at Redemption Hill and it's so easy for us to get sidetracked into so many other things that the church could be about and so this series beginnings we're looking at what what must we be about And so that's what we're walking through together in the section that we're typically in. And even as we walk through books of the Bible together, though, you also need to know that we celebrate the resurrection every single Sunday we're together. And in fact, the reason historically that the church, that Christians have gathered on Sundays for worship is to be reminded that it was on a Sunday that Jesus was raised from death to life. So even though Easter was last week, we can still tonight come together and say together, he is risen. I got like 15% of you. <laughs> this, we, every week, our only hope is that he is risen. And so even with that in mind, today we'll see that in Christ, the spirit of God fills us and empowers us to experience the power of God. And that when the power of God works in his church and among his people, it shows up with great grace and great fear. And so this is what we have. We're going to read this, this passage in two sections tonight, and I think you'll see why. So we're in the the end of Acts chapter 4 and into Acts chapter 5. 
Um, up till this point, just a little bit of recap, um, it, the early church, with the Holy Spirit had descended, Peter had just preached a second sermon, he, he and John had healed a crippled beggar, and they preached in the temple grounds in a porch called Solomon's Portico, they preached again, they were arrested and stood boldly in front of a council, they received stern warnings from the relig religious leaders in Jerusalem who had killed Jesus. And then they got back and went to their friends and they prayed together and they prayed, Lord, grant us to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so it's on, in, on the back of that prayer that we see this description of this church community. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the, poor, the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this section, Luke has this emphasis again. So if, if you've been with us in this series, you might remember that back in chapter 2, we saw the Spirit descend. Peter preached a sermon saying, Jesus is the Savior that we've been waiting for, and he's the King we've been waiting for. And the people repented, 3,000 people repented, were baptized, entered into this new community. And then in Acts chapter 2, we have a description of that community. And a beautiful description of what happens when the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and that the apostles were proclaiming, when that shapes a community and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to prayer and they were in each other's homes and went to the temple courts together and day by day God added to their number those who were being saved. And so then we see this repeated pattern where Peter preaches a sermon, the, the believers are gathered together, and we have another description of this early community, this early church. And as they're gathered together in prayer, God begins answering their prayers, that they would continue to speak in boldness, that he would continue to move in their midst. And it says that the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The power of God was moving in this, in this group. They'd seen an, a second outpouring of the Spirit. Just before this, it says that in response to their prayer, that the Spirit of God filled the place where they were, and it was shaken. And so a second movement of God's Spirit, and, and the result of the power of God at work in their midst was great grace. That's the first big characteristic that we see in our passage today. And so that grace characterized their community. And so, again, just to emphasize this too, the, the message, the gospel message that they were proclaiming with power that the apostles came back to was the resurrection of Jesus. And this gospel, what we just celebrated on Easter, again, it continues now. And as a church, that is the ultimate foundation that we have, is that Jesus Christ came, God in the flesh, 
that he lived a sinless life, was killed in our place for our sin, the ultimate sacrifice for us, and that he was raised from death to life, conquering sin and death for us. And that when we turn to Jesus, we are filled with the Spirit of God, brought into a family together, reconciled to God and to each other, and, and that that shapes us into a community and a people. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And if you're here tonight and you don't know what Christianity is about or you're exploring what it might what it is that's what it is it's belief that God has intervened for you to save you and that you can turn a belief and repentance now and be welcomed into his family and that begins to shape then a community it's the power of God moves it's going to show up with great grace the grace of God on them and so there's some characteristics we see here of what that meant for this church community that are helpful for us first it meant unity do you see how it said in how Luke said this? The guy who wrote Acts, he says, now they were filled with the spirit of God and they continued to speak his word with boldness before this. And now the, the full number of those who believed, the whole church gathered together, which we know at this point is more than 5,000 people. And the whole number of them together were of one heart and one soul. It was unity that was also built on trust. It says that people were selling their own possessions and they were laying them at the apostles' feet so that the apostles could determine and decide what would be done with those things. This is a level of unity that is beautiful and that can only happen when the power of God is on the move. It can only happen when the Spirit of God has infused a community. Because this, this unity that's described of one heart and one soul, I mean, that, that captures what Paul would say later to a church that was planted in Philippi when he said to them, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, whether I come and see you or am, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What he's talking about there is what's reflected here. In Acts chapter 4, that the power of God and the gospel forms the church of Jesus Christ. That the primary characteristic that's listed first of this great grace was the unity that they had. And the apostles were free to do the work that they were called to. They were continuing to bear witness to the resurrection and proclaim Jesus and tell others about what Jesus had done and what God had done through Jesus Christ. And people were gladly contributing and giving themselves fully to that community and trusting the apostles with even their financial and, and material goods. A church with the Holy Spirit moving within it will show off the grace of God through deep, deep unity. And then it also, the second characteristic we see is self-sacrificial generosity. People were responding in self-sacrifice. They were selling their possessions. They were selling fields. It even tells the story of this one guy, Joseph, who they nicknamed Barnabas and says, say he sold a field and gave all of that money to the church and laid it at the apostles' feet and gave it to that community. See, they understood, these early, these early Christians understood the difference between ownership and stewardship, and they kept it straight. Most of us approach our material possessions with a mentality of ownership. And so we, we think that we've, we've earned everything that we have and that the things that we have, that we have a certain level of comfort that we deserve and that those things exist to bring us that comfort. And if there's leftovers, then we can use those leftovers to invest into other people and other work. 
Um, that's our default mode. This is every advertisement you have ever seen will tell you, you are worth it. You deserve this. You've earned this. You need to, this is the thing that will make you happy. And sometimes it works for a very short time. This is why they hook us on things like iPhones and then make marginal increases and upgrades and we all go, oh, I need it. And I'm gonna spend a year salivating about it until I'm out of this contract <laughs> and I can finally upgrade. They, but we get hooked on things and on owning things and on things bringing us a level of comfort and happiness that they promise that they can never deliver on. These early Christians understood stewardship. Not that they owned what they have and earned what they have, but instead they believed everything that they have was actually a gift from God. That it was something that he had provided to them, and in that, they were able to, to say that all, all things then exist for God's glory and Jesus' mission, and so that actually freed them to say those things don't, aren't the place where their happiness and fulfillment was going to be found, and that they would willingly give up those things and leverage their material goods and their material wealth and, and their money and their possessions in order to facilitate a greater spiritual reality. And so that's, that is what they understood and why they were able to let it go is because they were able to look at it and say, and it was anti-materialism. They were saying, no, these things were given to us, but Barnabas is saying, this field is something that God has given to me, and even the things that we earn are things that he has given us the abilities and the skills and the talents and the opportunities and the timing to be able to have. And so to lay everything at his feet and consider instead, instead of saying, what do I need so that I can finally reach that point of happiness, and to instead say, I have been given all things in Jesus Christ and an inheritance in eternity in God's presence in the kingdom of life. And so in light of that, I want other people to join me in that kingdom. How can I leverage what I've got now in order to be able to bring others along with me in the end? These people laid things down. See, what they understood is that they knew the self-sacrifice of Jesus. They believed it in a resurrected Lord. They believed that the things the apostles were proclaiming about Jesus coming back from the dead, conquering death, and ascending to the right hand of heaven, of God in heaven, where he reigns as king, they actually believed that was true. And so because of that, their eyes were in a, in on an eternal plane. They weren't looking at just what they could accomplish here and now, what they could earn here and now, and building bigger barns to store more things here and now. Instead, they were looking at eternity and, and understanding the self-sacrifice of Jesus and the self-sacrificial life of Jesus. And they embraced that themselves. Church, it is easy for us to forget that if you worship Jesus, then we are worshiping a homeless man as our savior. He didn't have a place to lay his head he didn't have material wealth. We read back in Luke's gospel that there was a group of wealthy women who bankrolled Jesus' ministry and gave to him and to the apostles so they could do the work they were doing. He wasn't a man that came from a wealthy background. He was born to a poor family. But he lived his life in self-sacrifice in this early Christian community in unity with each other, with one heart and one soul working together lived in self-sacrificial generosity. See, what they understood is that Christianity is not an individualized pursuit. It's not just about me and God. And Christianity is not just an ethereal pursuit. 
Like, like Gnostic dualism of saying that the physical and the spiritual are separate and actually getting into God's presence means we have to get rid of the physical and all that matters is the spiritual. They didn't believe those things. What they understood is that if Christianity is real, then God has given us this place and declared it good and that the implications of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and his now reigning kingship as Lord of all lords means that we can invest into the world around us and the people around us for their good and that brings glory to God. Their faith had legs to it and it worked itself out in real life. The third characteristic of the great grace of God shown here is provision for needs. That's the next characteristic we see is that none of them had needs, not one of them. That's, I mean, that's a huge statement, isn't it? They, were, they, were, they, they got rid of all their things. They, they, got, they sold off things. They didn't get rid of all their things. They sold off things that, that were their own, and everyone had everything in common. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and, bought, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. So not one of them had needs. This is the beauty of what can happen in the community, the people of God. I was talking to somebody recently. My family took a trip up Niagara Falls, and we were staying with um, one of Simon, my boy's friends' grandparents. I know it's random. We drive to a different state and stay with some kids' grandparents that we didn't know. We had a blast. And they were doing some renovations on their house in upstate New York, up by Niagara Falls. And um, he was telling me they had Amish men working on their house who did incredible, beautiful work. And, they, and he was telling me that, um, that he went to the, you know, the county to get permits and those kinds of things, and um, the Amish workers don't believe in insurance, and so you need insurance in order to get the permits. And so he had a bonded, signed, old order of the Amish certificate that explained that, the, the, that one of the men in like a, a certain number of tens of thousands of Amish men stand behind this man and his work and we'll back, that was the insurance. There's something that the Amish get right there, that, to be, that it's the support of the community. If someone's house burns down, they don't call an insurance company for that. People show up and build a new house, and it starts almost immediately. They share things in common and rally around each other and provide for each other's needs. Something beautiful there. Now, it doesn't say that they provided for the needs of everyone in their city, um, we, they, they, didn't, they were providing for those within the household of God, but it, and we know that Jesus even says that we will always have the poor among us, but it does mean that the church took care of her own. Now, it, John Calvin said here, we must have hearts that are harder than iron if we aren't moved by the reading of this narrative. There's something here that's beautiful, lovely, that in the church... We should be able to rally around and support each other in our needs. This was again ca captured by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. He said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one of us test, each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And so uh, people get uncomfortable reading this passage at times. People will read Acts 4 and they'll say, is that, is that communism? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm a theologian. And I don't think that's the most helpful question here. 
Um, if you mean like the system of communism that has been imposed and under, under rulers that demand things of the people, well then no, because this isn't an imposed system. It's sacrificial and it's joyful, it's generous, it's voluntary as people are, are doing these things. It's also not manipulated into laziness. That's where you have the corrective in Galatians 6 where Paul says, hey, bear one another's burdens, but at the end, like, don't become a burden yourself. Like, work hard. He says to the Thessalonian church, if, if, you don't, if someone doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And so it's not saying that, but it is saying that they provided for each other. And so if, if the idea that this is too communal for you makes you write off this passage, then I would say to you, don't. And take some time to actually consider that this is what the church was doing to support each other, and there's something beautiful in this, and we don't need to write it off simply because of politicized systems for massive nations that we disagree with politically. Some of you are like, I'm a socialist, so I'll take it. <laughs> this is the beauty of Redemption Hill, the unity that we can have together. <laughs> Provision for needs, the fourth characteristic we see, and we see unity that led to self-sacrifice, self-sacrifice that led to provision, and over the top, the, the icing on the cake is encouragement. One of these guys named Joseph was called by the apostles Barnabas, son of encouragement. He was given a nickname because he was so deeply encouraging to the leaders of this movement. That's incredible. And listen, the longer I live and the longer I do church work and pastoral ministry, the less impressed I am by the flashier gifts and upfront big personality that I think has impressed me in the past, and the, the more amazed I am by people who are actually gifted in the area of encouragement. I don't think there's anything more vital to, the, to everything else we see in these characteristics. I also don't think that there's anything that reflects the movement of the Spirit of God within somebody more clearly than their ability to encourage other people. Encourage, some people, it seems like they just ooze encouragement, right? And we all have people in our lives that when you spend time with them, your spirit is lifted. Like you, you spend time with them and you can't wait to see them because you know you're gonna leave feeling better about yourself, about life, about, about our city, about this world. You're gonna feel like there's actually hope in the world because they lift your spirit. There are people that, the, the kind of people that when they walk into any room, everybody there seems to be lifted up and encouraged. There, there is a giftedness to that, and, but, but it doesn't mean that if we're not gifted that way that we're exempt from the, the call to it. Some people just ooze those things, and we all need to aspire to those things. This is an area that I've had to grow in, if I'm, if I'm honest with you. I, some of us are not natural encouragers. Some of us are natural cynics that can see through any system and any argument, any personality, any accomplishment, and cut it down without even thinking. It's easier to be a cynic. It's, it's safer to be a cynic. To be an encourager actually puts you in a vulnerable position. That you might lift somebody up and, and they are likely going to fail you and could even harm you. To be a cynic keeps you at arm's length. It makes it possible for you to, to, to point out why things aren't good. And, and this is what happens so often in, in, for us in our hearts when, when we respond to being hurt by people or by circumstances in our lives. It's, it's this cycle. I mean, it may, maybe this is familiar for some of you. Somebody does something to hurt you, and the response is, I am never going to let that happen again. You know, fool me, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I am going to make sure that nobody's able to hurt me that way again. 
And so you go into relationships and friendships and communities of people with a cynical eye waiting for the thing that they're going to do wrong so that you can remove yourself from it, putting them through tests to see if they're going to be able to make the cut so that you can be safe in their presence without feeling pain again. That elevates us over other people because we're able to cut them down and, and make sure that we, we, we are able to distance ourselves that way. It protects us from unseen pain. It makes us look smart. And cynicism will destroy everything we see here. Cynicism will destroy unity in a community of people because we, we won't, we, we, because it, it, no, nobody likes to be around a cynic except another cynic, and eventually you're gonna turn on each other too. <laughs> and it cuts people apart. You, it'll never lead to self-sacrifice because you're always looking, for, looking out for yourself. It'll never lead to provision for other people's needs because you'll always be able to undercut their needs or moralize their needs as their own failures. And, it will and you'll never encourage people. Encouragement, though, where cynicism can breed death and division, encouragement breathes life and strength. Think about it. You, in your life, have had people say things to you at key times in your life that the words ring in your ears forever for good and for bad. If people, times where people have lifted you up and that encouragement is something that you still go back to that still buoys your soul. They're able to think back and say, you know what, I'm struggling and I'm wrestling through a deep depression right now, but I do believe when that person said to me that I am a child of God who's valuable, that it's true. And on the other hand, every one of us has people in our lives from childhood we can remember conversations where people cut us down and those words continue to ring in our souls. They continue to be spoken over us like a tape replay, condemning us, telling us how worthless we are. Church, let's be Barnabases. Let's breathe life into each other. There is not one person in this room today who's over-encouraged. I don't... That's not a thing. <laughs> like you're never gonna over-encourage somebody. We should never stop encouraging each other. Romans 12 tells us that's the one thing we're supposed to be competitive about is in outdoing one another and how well we honor each other. So let's encourage each other. Let's breathe life into each other. Let's build somebody up. You can do it today. Before you leave this place, grab somebody, tell them what you see in them and how you see God's goodness and his image and likeness reflected from them. Breathe life and courage into their soul. So listen, this was shaped in this church as a result of suffering and pressure, and it's an answer to their prayers. And in Redemption Hill, I see the power of God at work in showing off this great grace. Church, I, I see it in you. I see this happen, I see unity across all kinds of, of different backgrounds and places that you've grown up and different ethnicities coming together, different political perspectives, different economics. The makeup of our church shows off the power of God at work, and I long for more of it. This is a, a crazy family that doesn't make sense except for the fact that we're dependent on the Spirit of God. 
And I know that for some of you, you've had to give up some, some things in your life in order to be a part of this family. And I am so grateful because we, I want us to continue to stumble forward together, pursuing unity together and being able to lay aside things that would normally divide us in order to come together. And that shows off the beauty of the gospel. We see that here. We see self-sacrificial generosity. We live in a self-absorbed city. It's completely. In our church, I see people open homes and their lives and their wallets, and there might be nothing more counter, deeply countercultural than that. People that, that share you know, homes and share vehicles and host meals and give sacrificially to the work of this church. We, I got contacted last week by an Acts 29 pastor from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I was like, cool. Axel has a church in Congo. <laughs> I didn't realize that. And he reached out to me and he said, my family is in Fresno, California. And I was like, okay, <laughs> um, that's a very different place. But he explained to me that his wife and three of his children had passports that had lapsed since they got to the States and that they needed to find their way to DC to go to the embassy in order to get their passports ironed out. So he reached out and said, you've never met me. And it was like, this is not a Nigerian prince. <laughs> he didn't ask me for my social security number and bank account. I'll admit I looked him up on the X-29 website. And, but he reached out and asked if we could help his wife and three kids when they got here. So I said, of course we can. I sent out an email last week. I don't know if it was to the whole church or the members group on CCB. And within 20 minutes of sending that email, I had five different people offer up places for them to stay. I had multiple people offer to move out of their house and figure out other arrangements to give this family their entire house. Church, that shows the beauty of the grace of God working through people to self-sacrifice to provide for other people's needs. That's one example. We could tell hundreds of those. So many of you have been helped by people around you. And when stuff happens in this church, people do respond, whether it's stolen bicycles or a need for groceries or housing or counseling or, or strollers and baby goods or job help and getting a career change or moving. Like, I think that moving is Redemption Hill's Amish barn raising. <laughs> Like when people move in this church, people show up. We know, how to, we know how to pack a truck. And it's amazing to see people come around each other that way. And encouragement. Honestly, this is the area I think I've seen the most growth over the past season in this church. As people, people in this church are willing to call out the goodness of God that they see in others and the work that God's doing through others. And so listen, let's make it our mission to continue to do that and make it our mission to find somebody today in this church and encourage them. Lift them up. Explain to them how you see God at work in and through them. Do it before you leave here tonight. Let's compete with each other in outdoing one another and how we honor each other. And listen, again, if you're here and you're not a Christian tonight, turn to Jesus and join us in this. We're not perfect. We've got, we've got a lot of issues and we're all a mess, but we're stumbling forward together, pursuing unity and self-sacrifice, provision and encouragement as the grace of God moves through us. And then Luke moves to the next section to show what happens, the, the, the reality that when this really is happening among a church, when God's spirit is really moving this way and these characteristics are showing off the beauty of the gospel, that Satan will do everything he can to destroy it. Goes on, so this is, again, going on from this section. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard of it. Then young, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the, de- when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. I guess we're a little quieter on that one. Um, if you're new... <laughs> And you need to know that we walk through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we don't skip the stuff that makes us uncomfortable. And in fact, we need to assess why this makes us so uncomfortable. Um, I was looking through, I have access and some software to, to sermons from, and sermon archives from some of my preaching heroes, and I um, looked through those this past week and could not find one sermon across thousands and tens of thousands preached by these great heroes of the faith, not one on this passage. And so I thought I would do it. (laughs) And we'll walk through it together. This passage is the only time in, in all of Acts that Luke uses the word great with the word fear. And he's making a parallel here. When the power of God is at work, it's going to show up in great grace and in great fear. And he mentions it twice in this passage, that in verse um, verse 5, that great fear came upon all who heard. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church. And incidentally, this is also the first time in Acts that we see the word ecclesia, which is assembly or church. So it's the first time he's actually used the word church. Then it's in the context of great fear coming upon the whole church. And so this passage shows us the honesty of the historical account in the New Testament. This is an uncomfortable thing for Luke to include, and I think that actually gives me comfort that Luke is an accurate historian that's going to capture all of it for us. But the reason we're holding these together tonight is because this is held together in this context. You notice chapter 5 starts with the word but. It's in contrast to Barnabas. So Luke is saying, look, look, this is what happened to this community and the, how the grace shaped this community. And there was this one man, Barnabas, who did this incredible thing and sold a field and gave all of the proceeds at the apostles' feet to give them and invest them into the work that was happening. And he was such an encourager. And so these are the things that were shaping this community and the church. And in contrast to Barnabas, we see Ananias and Sapphira. Now, names mean a lot in the Bible. Ananias means God is gracious in Hebrew. Sapphira means beautiful in Aramaic. 
but here their names are nothing short of ironic. I think we're tempted to have pity for Ananias and Sapphira. I think for most of us, when we read this, we're like, it seems like an overreaction. Like, they did a good thing, right? They sold property and gave money to the church. And they're struck dead on the spot. Like, no chance for explanation, no chance for repentance. There were some commentators that I read that wanted to blame this on Peter. Say, why would Peter respond so harshly? You know, what's the big deal if they kept some of it back? But if those things come for two reasons. First, because I think we misunderstand the reason they were struck down. It wasn't about how much money they gave. But second, maybe more important, we fail to have a clear picture of the actual holiness of an almighty God. And that makes it impossible for us to understand why this could possibly happen. Now, their actual sin was deceit. It was that they lied. That's, it says it right here that Peter just asked a question, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some for yourself? You have not lied to man, but to God. One commentator said Ananias and Sapphira's ruse was not a mere miscalculation in their checkbook, but a premeditated deception. This was pr pious pretense, a religious sham, simulated holiness, a Christian fraud. And so why was this such a big deal? Because there was a new community forming. The Spirit of God was moving in power for a second outpouring where he filled the place and filled these people and was shaping this new community. And as it was forming, nothing would fracture it and destroy its effectiveness and power more quickly than deceit and distrust. The language that Peter uses when he says, why did you keep back for yourself? The Greek word that he uses there is only used one time in the entire Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's in Joshua chapter 7, where it talks about the Israelites, the, the nation of Israel, coming into the promised land. As they were coming into the promised land, God was moving with power through them. And they were, they were in, but he had made clear guidelines on not, they were not allowed to take and plunder from the places that they were, that they were capturing. And, and yet one man did. His name was Achan. His sin was exposed, and Achan also was put to death. And so the same thing as the newly formed people of God were entering into the promises of God and the calling of God, the same language is used here to show that the sin is the same, that they were keeping back and stealing from and lying to God himself. This was not a casual deception. They lied to the Holy Spirit of God. And that facade of holiness, of self-sacrifice is the heart of the issue. They wanted to be in like Barnabas. Barnabas was an encourager. Barnabas, because he was such an encourager and then had means and was self-sacrificial, he was noticed by the apostles. He even got a nickname from the apostles. Of course it would have been tempting for somebody that had property that they could sell off. And it says a field, so it doesn't say that they sold all of their fields. It doesn't say that Barnabas did. It said he sold a field that he owned. So if they, it, you can imagine why Ananias and Sapphira were like, hey, we have a field, we have a piece of property we could sell, and we don't even know what happened here. It could be that they sold it and got the amount they wanted and then just 
backed off and took some for themselves at the end. It could be, who knows, maybe it was that they got more than what they expected on the price and just decided to keep the overflow. But whatever the details of the money are, that's the issue here is not that the, the money itself. All they had to do was come to Peter and say, hey, we sold a field and we want to give some of the money to the church. But instead they hatched a scheme. They wanted to prop something up and show themselves to be more pious than they were. And that conspiracy, that scheme, that lie is the real issue. You know, they, Peter mentions Satan. Why, why has Satan filled your heart? Because Satan is, is the father of lies. In Genesis 3, he told the first lie and, and raising the question to Adam and Eve saying, saying, did God really say that you're not supposed to eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of raising the question, does God really know what's best for you? What's enough for you? Maybe God's holding out on you, and he knows that you'd become like him yourself if you ate of that tree. Satan started lies, and now these two, Ananias and Sapphira, were lying to God himself and refusing to trust his sovereignty and his provision. Again, they didn't have to. Church, we need to understand that God is a holy God. That we should approach him with a level of awe and reverence and fear. And we need to understand that God's judgment always begins in his own house. Peter writes that later on, that it's time for judgment to begin and it begins in the household of God. You know, I think that that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we all, we, it's easy for us to look outside at people that we disagree with and think, God, why, when is your judgment going to come on them? Well, I'm waiting for it. I mean, even these, even these apostles, when they were walking with Jesus, were in a Samaritan village one time and said, Jesus, can we rain down fire on them? And Jesus was like, no, <laughs> you're missing it. We don't understand that God is holy and that judgment begins in his own house. And this is a critical point in the new church community with the power of God so clearly at work, the grace of God so palpable. Francis Schaeffer said here, the principle of the judgment of the people of God runs like this. When we sin, God knows it because he exists and he's infinite. When we sin, the blessing of God and the power of God in our midst slows down or stops and it can even stop for a whole group on the basis of the sin of one or a few. There'll be judgment either for our, from ourselves in confessing sin or judgment from God, but if we return, the blessing will continue again. See, we have such an individualized perspective so deeply ingrained into us that we, it's hard for us to even fathom the reality of, of what the New Testament describes. We need, there is no portrait here of an individualized faith. There is no understanding or New Testament context for Christianity just being about me and Jesus. It's always in the context of community, and the proclamation of the gospel instantly formed the community of the people of God. And yes, our spiritual well-being and God's movement in our midst is dependent on and contingent on the spiritual state of each other. We're reliant on each other. We are in this thing together, and our sin doesn't just damage us. It's not just a matter of me confessing to Jesus. Our sin can infect and destroy the entire community we're a part of. That's why Ananias and Sapphira were dealt with so swiftly. 
Um, I did find one commentator, uh, a theologian named Don Carson, that was really helpful here. And on this passage, I don't mind just turning to him. So he had, he had um, four observations that I think are helpful. He said, what we have here is on the records because their deceit, it's disturbing on several grounds, and the early church thought it was. I mean, it brought great fear, but there's, he said there's four things, four observations to focus in on what the real issues are here. First, revival does not guarantee the absence of sin in a community. When many people are converted and genuinely transformed, when there are many renewed and, truly, and people really learn to hate sin, other people will find it more attractive to be thought of as holy rather than to be holy. You catch that. When the Spirit of God is moving in a community, and I think we have a gift here from Luke, because we could read Acts chapter 4 and hear this, the, how the grace shaped this community and just go, my gosh, I've never seen anything like that. It must have been perfect. Like, this is the, a utopian vision for what the church could be. And if we were only left with that, then it would be easy for us to turn to any church we go to and think, oh, man, these guys don't, they don't have their act together. Like, they're... They're not showing the unity that they should. They're not showing self-sacrifice like they should. And we get into that cynical mode. And then if we ever found the perfect church, any of us joining it would ruin it. But Luke shows us here that when the Spirit of God is at work most powerfully, the Spirit, that Satan himself will try to tear that down more fervently. So he, listen to this again. When many people are converted and genuinely transformed, when many are renewed and truly learn to hate sin, others will find it more attractive to be thought holy than to be holy. Revival offers temptations to hypocrisy that would be less potent when the temper of the age is, is more secular or pagan. So he's saying, and we do this, every one of us is tempted to prop up a facade that way. The second issue, he says, is not the disposition of money that Ananias and Sapphira obtained with property, it's the lie that they told it was a claim to sanctity and self-denial, a pretense of generosity and piety, then that was, was, was so offensive to the Holy Spirit. Left unchecked, that might multiply, and, and it would certainly place into positions of honor in this early church uh, people whose conduct didn't deserve it. But worse, this was a blatant lie to the Holy Spirit, as if the Spirit of God couldn't know the truth or wouldn't care. In this sense, it was supremely presumptuous, betraying a stance so removed from God-centeredness of genuine faith that it was actually idolatrous. When we put up a facade that we are more holy and more sanctified and more self-sacrificial than we really are, we are lying to the Spirit of God and acting as if he does not know the truth. The third issue is conspiracy. It wasn't enough that Ananias did this wicked stunt on his own. He acted with his wife's full knowledge, we read in verse 2. And instead, in her lying, it wasn't like Peter called her in and she was like, I don't know, Ananias said it was that amount. She, said, she firmly said it was that amount. They agreed on the plan, so there was a conspiracy here. And we need to hear this because when things happen and cynicism sets in, it never happens in isolation. It always mean, we always get other people involved with us to try to tear down the thing that we see. And so they acted together. Fourth, in times of genuine revival, judgment may be more immediate than in times of decay. And Carson says, when God walks away from the church and lets the multiplying sin take course, that's the worst judgment of all. But when God responds to sin with prompt severity, lessons are learned and the church is spared a worse drift. 
In this case, great fear fell not only on the church, but also on those who heard of these events. See, at the core here, Ananias faked a deeper spiritual commitment than he really had. And here's where it stings. That every single one of us does the same thing. That I've done the same thing. I've fallen into the same trap. So every one of us needs to be sobered by this. Every one of us sins when we try to make others think that we're more spiritual than we really are. That's the core of man-made religion and how it's separate from God-focused gospel faith. This is sliding into a concept that if I do these things and present myself this way, then I'm going to earn my way into greater happiness, greater influence, greater positions of honor. And so we do it. We prop up a facade knowing that it's not actually what's true within us. And we do it in the most subtle ways. Maybe it's that you give the impression that you're a prayer warrior when you know that you never pray. I had to change my behavior a couple of years ago because I realized at one point that I would have people come to me, especially when it would happen on a Sunday and I'd be talking to somebody afterward and really legitimately be present in the moment and then say to somebody, you know, one of, a member of Redemption Hill Church, oh man, thank you so much for opening up to me and for trusting me with this. I'm gonna pray for you this week. And then I would see them the next Sunday and go, oh no. <laughs> have I hit the same time yet or am I still underneath seven days? <laughs> I had to realize that I, unless I wrote it down and I have some different things I can do to help me remember that, that, that I was making false promises at points and it, propping up a facade as if I was praying more than I was. And so I've made it my practice now that I am much more likely, if I have the, the privilege of being entrusted with something in your life and hearing something, to, to say, ask you, can we pray? And to pray then. To intercede for God, uh, to God for you then. Because I want to do it, but I, but I don't want to prop up the idea that I'm more holy than I am. It could be more subtle. It could be, you know, propping up an image that you have it all together. You're the, you're the, you're the answer man. You're the, the one that theologically has it all figured out. Or you're the woman that people turn to for advice and for help. And, and you give good advice and people follow it and they benefit from it. And you've got it. So you put up this impression of, yeah, I've got it all together. When inside you are wrecked with doubt. And you can't even get your own life sorted out. It might be more like Ananias' fire, that you give the impression that you're ex extravagantly generous toward other people when you know that you're clinging money to money for yourself. You can give the impression that you're a great leader when, when the opportunities to actually work and to serve are beneath you. The idea that you're a hard worker who was just actually good at looking busy. Or it could be that you give the impression that you're an encourager. When you know that you're carefully working to manipulate people's perspectives. The witness of the gospel through us, the power of God working in and, in and through us as a people, is going to be shown off most powerfully when we're responding in generosity and self-sacrifice with integrity. And that witness will be damaged severely when under the surface our motives are about selfishness and deceit. Every one of us spends our lives in a tension between really understanding and comprehending the transcendent holiness of God and the depth of our own sin. 
We have the tension of performing, of, of lowering the standard of God's holiness and thinking we can live up to the standard or pretending that we're not as broken as we are. And what we need to see in this story about Ananias and Sapphira is that when our motives are off, when our motives are self-serving and self-aggrandizing, and when we're twisting the reality and the facts of things in order to present ourselves as better than we are and more spiritual than we are, then the best of our acts of service can actually contribute more to the work of Satan than to the work of Jesus. It wasn't bad that they sold the field. But all they had to do was be honest. Say, Peter, we saw what Barnabas did. That motivated us. We wanted to do something too, and we sold it, but we just couldn't bring ourselves to do the whole thing, and so we're giving what we can. They would have been open and honest, and the church would have received their gift, but they lied to the Spirit of God. Listen, we need to be careful not to convince ourselves of the purity of our own intentions and the clarity of our own perspectives, and yet join the devil in his work of destroying the grace of God. We undercut unity when we, through gossip and when, we, and when we thinly veil gossip as prayer requests. We undercut self-sacrificial living when we over-represent ourselves and cast doubt on others. We, we undercut people providing for needs by casting luxuries in our own lives as needs. And we undercut encouragement we forget that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren and we too often join him in that work rather than speaking words of life. This is why great fear is actually a positive outworking of the power of God in this church community. There's joyful celebration, there's mutuality, there's unity, and there's also then, it's matched with the sober realization of who God is. This is what we see in, in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul calls that church, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume our adversaries. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, the reason this passage is so strange to us and we get defensive of Ananias and Sapphira is because we don't have a clear enough perspective on the holiness of God and on the majesty of the calling to be his people. But there's also hope for us, church. The power of God results in the grace of God in our midst. In Hebrews, at the end of the chapter, he said, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Schaefer went on to say the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was followed by judgment because the sin would have stopped the church's advance. The church had just experienced a second great filling of the Holy Spirit. Power was there, power to face the lost Greco-Roman world. If this sin of acting from bad motivation in order to be superficially accepted by the church had been allowed to grow in the church's heart, the whole advance would have been endangered. But after the judgment, the early church went on in power. So listen, this is a 
a tough passage to walk through. Um, I've got to confess, this is a terrifying passage to bring to you as your pastor. And I get why most pastors avoid it entirely. It's caused me some serious self-examination this week, and it's scary for me to preach because I know so well where I, where I fail. And I don't want to prop up a facade that I've got it together more than I really do. I don't want to prop up a facade that I've got an understanding more than I do, or that I'm holier than I am, or more generous than I am, or more loving or encouraging than I am. And I, I don't want to fall into the same sin, and yet my heart goes to those places. And so I want you to know, church, that I am a mess just like you. That I am broken just like you. I need Jesus every day just like you. A community shaped by the grace of God with great grace and a sober fear of God, understanding his holiness with a great fear, means that we can be a place where we don't have to put up facades, where we can be, we can be a community who's able to say, hey, your brokenness actually shows off God's goodness. Don't try to be something you're not. Stop pretending. Stop performing. Christ's work finished the job for you. He paid the price for you. Your holiness and your, present, your, your opportunity to be present with God for eternity is not contingent on what you have done. And so rest, be open about your brokenness, and lean in as we pursue greater holiness together. Let's not, let's not love the appearance of holiness more than we love the holiness of God itself. And let's not pretend to be better than we are. Let's commit to it together. I want to see the power of God at work in us and among us and through us. I want to see the Spirit of God to empower us to experience God's power and believe that will lead us to greater fear as we come closer to a holy God. And I also believe it will show up in great grace and as we pursue unity and self-sacrifice and provision for each other and encouragement, calling out when we see people doing these things. And let's pray that God protects us from our own self-advancement and empowers us as his witnesses together. So there we go. First Sunday post-Easter. We see the shape of a new community in a difficult text, but one that I'm grateful for us to be able to walk through together. It's important. There's a reason it was given to us. Tonight, let this be a time of introspection, of realization. It may be that you have to repent to somebody around you and somebody close to you of times when you know you've propped yourself up. But rest in Christ's finished work and the grace of God shown to you. You can be freed from the need to represent yourself as anything other than who you are. Let's pray. Father, we need you and we love you. Would you move by your spirit in our hearts to assure us of your love and kindness for us? Would you forgive us for times when we have propped up an image that just isn't true? Would you help us to be a community of grace and unity and self-sacrifice and provision and encouragement to each other and to stumble forward together? 
I want to see your power move in and through this church, Lord. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.